Team right. Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government. Uh, my name is Julian McRae. I'm Deputy Director at the Institute. And today we have an event, a discussion um, on how to attract and develop talent in the civil service. Uh, we're particularly interested in concept of permeability. How do we help people with the right talents move into the civil service? And indeed, how do we help civil servants themselves move out, gain some experience in other areas before returning? Uh, I'm glad to say this is a uh, event we're doing in partnership with Oracle, uh, who have supported us on this uh, quite a way. And actually, um, glad to welcome Rupert McNeil, the Civil Services Chief People Officer, um, back um, to our stage, who kicked off this series uh, a little while ago, around January, talking about the workforce strategy and uh, where the Civil Service is taking that. Um, so this is very much picking up on one of the topics that was central to, to that, uh, that strategy. And for those of you who received an earlier invite, I'm afraid Debbie Alder couldn't join us uh, for this, and Rupert very kindly stepped in uh, to do that and take that uh, position, represent the Civil Service on this issue. I'm also joined by Catherine Baxendale, who uh, many of you will know from her report uh, just before the last election, which touched uh, yeah, a really, really good report looking at how people, the experience of coming into the civil service, uh, lots of people from lots of backgrounds, and really got into some of the cultural and really personal human issues that are involved in those sort of transitions. Um, so great to have Catherine here with, of course, a huge experience from human resources in the private sector and across the piece. Um, and finally, I'm joined by my colleague um, Jill Rutter, um, who will be providing a sort of institute view on some of these issues, uh, but also is here in a personal sort of capacity. So I'll get to grill her on her own experiences of being a civil servant, moving out of the civil service, and then returning back, and how she found that as, uh, as she uh, went through the, the, those experiences. Um, We'll start in format just with uh, some initial contributions from each of our panellists. I'll probably then try and probe with a few questions, draw out some themes across that, and then you know turn it over to yourselves, questions, comments from the floor, uh, try and get a bit of discussion around something that people have been trying to do, doing with some success and some failures for a very long time. Uh, and I suppose the key question we're trying to get to the heart of today, what are we doing this time around? How will we know when we're succeeding in really getting the talent into the civil service that we know we need for all the challenges, which I won't bother repeating, uh, that we face going forward. Um, so with that, I was going to start off with Catherine, if you want to kick us off on your thoughts and reflections of your report and where you think things are, are up to now. Thank you very much. So, good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me here today. I'm going to give you a very brief background on myself and the project, the approach I took, my findings and recommendations. My background in business was in brand management, Procter & Gamble, and then in various marketing and commercial roles in Tesco. So I had a broad experience of general management. My specialism in HR came subsequently as HR director for the Tesco commercial and marketing division, not on the main board. I just wanted to make that clarification. I then undertook various professional exams and became an independent consultant specialising in leadership development and organisational change. I've worked with various large organisations, so when the Cabinet Office contacted me in 2014, I was delighted to lead a project on talent in the Senior Civil Service. So what was my brief and my approach? Francis Maud gave me a very clear brief. He wanted to find out if the senior civil service was attracting the best people, recruiting them in the best way, 
and whether their induction and how they were set up in their new role facilitated success or failure. It was clearly an important and sensitive project and the Cabinet Office specified that I work on this on my own. The process I conducted included one-to-one -one interviews with externally recruited people into the senior civil service who had clearly been successful. I also interviewed people recruited from outside who had left in a couple of years and were quite angry. And then a number of senior people, including permanent secretaries, director generals, who had broad experience and perspective. This included interviews with Sir Jeremy Hayward, Sir Bob Kerslake, Sir John Brown, John Manzoni, David Norrington, and various other members at the top of the organisation. I also held one-to-one -one interviews with those big guns and bright sparks brought in from industry, technology, and the financial sectors into director general and director roles with key valuable skills who would ideally become the very senior leaders of the future. I ran focus groups with deputy directors and finally I designed and ran a confidential questionnaire to about a hundred new directors and direct deputy directors who have been recruited into civil service in the last three years across government. My information was rich, fascinating and highly confidential. My mission was to pull this together in a way that was fair, representative, proportionate and constructive. This process of information gathering lasted about two months and the first draft was produced quickly afterwards. Then there was a lot of frustrating, to be honest, toing and froing between the Cabinet Office and the Civil Service about how the report was written, when it would be published and what the Civil Service response would be. This resulted in the report being published on the government website at the end of March 2015, just before the general election in May. However, the national newspapers did pick it up a few months later with the support of the Institute for Government and specifically a thanks to Jill Rutter. So what were my key findings and recommendations? Overall, the Senior Civil Service is a highly competent and values-driven organisation where very able people try to do the right thing. They serve the democratically elected government of the day in order to ensure the political leaders deliver for the country in a reasonable, rational, rational and appropriate way. However, on the downside, there is a distinct senior civil service culture, which can be difficult for outsiders from all walks of life to permeate. As one interviewee said, there is not a level cultural playing field. One interviewee stated rather more graphically the issue regarding permeability. I quote, Intellectually, the civil service wants to import talent, but as soon as the operation is over, the antibodies attack. The key issues I found were around, firstly, the senior civil service resistance to change and a bit of a closed mentality. As one interviewee said, the civil service wants what people have to bring, but then doesn't expect anything to be disrupted. Secondly, their lack of value on operational delivery versus strategy. As someone said, the culture values strategy over operational detail. Operational delivery is underappreciated. Thirdly, being process rather than outcome driven, I quote, the expected public scrutiny means that one has to follow all the right processes, but the patient dies. 
And finally, being very hierarchical. As an interviewee said, the hierarchical culture gets in the way of the best ideas and the best advice. Being a critical friend is not being disloyal to the idea of one civil service. A key skill external hires need to succeed is their ability to adapt and be flexible in new surroundings and their ability to build trust with key people in the hierarchy. As one person said, I see many externals who simply don't get it, cannot adjust and fail as a result. However, those external senior hires with the people and organisational skills to influence, navigate and harness support in a complex environment can do well. Specifically, those people brought in to do change projects were sometimes not set up for success. They didn't know their way round the complex organisation. They didn't understand the formal and informal power hierarchies. And they didn't have the expert resource to make things happen. Further, change experts from business may not have been equipped with the leadership style and personality suited to leading change in the more nuanced environment of the highest echelons of the civil service. As another interviewee said, very good people can get lost, even a bit pushed out, as they don't speak the language and don't get the nuances. Previous experience did not seem to be readily appreciated or utilised, resulting in senior, highly paid, competent people feeling frustrated, undervalued and eventually leaving clearly has significant individual, organisational and financial implications. These did not seem to be one-off situations, but part of a wider pattern of failure of talent management, talent management and talent utilisation for some people in some departments. This meant that the leaving rate for those hired externally into senior positions was higher, even double than those promoted from within. The data was, however, patchy. And one of my recommendations was to track this much more carefully. There were some many simple, basic and genuinely fundamental improvements I recommend on the way people were recruited, how they were inducted and briefed, and how they were set up in their new role, and what support and direction that they were given. There seemed to be a lot of unnecessary angst, frustration and missed opportunities from people not being treated and helped in the transition. For example, key skills and behaviours that readily identified in my research as essential for success did not seem to be translated into a recruitment criteria. This was a key simple improvement which needed to be made and was part of the recommendations. Further, the lack of a decent induction at the start of the role, and in many cases just an induction of any sort, would have made a big difference to being set up for success. There were many truly awful cases, which I'm not quoting now, of good people being let down by the system and management when they arrived in a new important role with little or no induction, support or direction. However, many of these failings could be easily, simply and cost-effectively rectified if the recommendations were actioned. I did suggest a follow-up piece of research to see if any of the changes described were actioned and whether the improvements made a difference to those on the ground. I'm not aware of this follow-up research has been done. So my key insight was understanding the human experience of external hires. It was clear from my research that for many people in the mid-layers of the senior civil service, this was the first time someone had asked them how they were getting on, what their experience of the recruitment process was, what was their induction like, how their career plan was going, and did they feel supported, valued, and hoping to develop their career in the medium and long term. 
further, if they felt things were lacking, what their suggestions were and how this could be improved. They were frankly delighted to be asked and were keen the report was accurate and fair and did not hold back from giving the honest feedback. They needed to be assured, reassured that these comments would be anonymised and that there would not be any repercussions. They were also were enthusiastic that changes would be made as a result. Overall, I felt a genuine, huge, positive energy towards the senior civil service by its employees. A deep appreciation of its strengths, its unique purpose and the way it is set up. However, equally, I felt a huge need for some simple improvements to be made which would make the human experience so much better. People really appreciated being spoken to and asked for their thoughts, feedbacks and suggestion. There were a few occasions when this became a sort of rant or even therapy as they were able to unload their past and current, past and current frustrations and angst. However, more generally, there was a deep passion and longing for improvement. I felt a sense of moral obligation to represent the many people's views fairly, proportionately and constructively. When asked to speak at the PACAC inquiry into the civil service, I felt the voice of the people I had interviewed and had responded to, my, to the questionnaire needed to be heard. And the most senior people to be more connected to how their people felt what they really needed in terms of support and direction to do their best in their work. I hope you have heard their voice today. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Catherine. Um, really good. And for anyone who missed that report just before the 2015 election, it, it is well worth a read. And indeed, a lot of the the voices and the comments to come out in quite a bit of research and indeed informal conversations we have at the Institute. Um, but also I do think that sort of sense of positivity comes out yeah. as well. You know, this is a sort of sense of a system that wants to achieve and wants to do well, but just hasn't yet, maybe, we'll give us the answer in a few minutes, uh, but found quite how it articulates and drives that change. Uh, I think that's really captured really nicely in your report. You. Uh, before I go to Rupert though, Jill, um, you've had experience from a different um, sort of side of being a civil servant, uh, career civil servant, and then moving out and then crucially coming back in, that sort of permeability thing that capturing the other side of that. I wonder if you could give us some of your thoughts and experience on that. Um, what you okay, mean? so I'm going to talk a bit about accidental permeability, uh, not intentional permeability of leaving and coming back. But actually, I've thought, I want to start off, Catherine mentioned that I was very interested in her report, and one of the reasons why I was so interested in her report was so much of those comments, even though I came in back in in a different way, resonated very much with some of my feelings about the experience of coming in as a coming back into the civil service as a semi-outsider. But also with an event that we had at the Institute for Government, I think about six years ago, when we had a very interesting event, which was a discussion between Gus O'Donnell, who I think had just, just left being Cabinet Secretary, and his Australian counterpart, Terry Moran. And Terry Moran was talking about the success the Australians had in bringing in external talent and then growing those people so they could take on very senior leadership roles. And Gus just said, yeah, we tried that here, they don't work ever, and left it at that. And actually, I thought that really betrayed 
quite a worrying thought that actually Gus himself saw absolutely no responsibility for the fact that bringing in people from outside failed and didn't even actually bother to ask Terry Moran, well, we've not made that work. How have you done it? Which I thought was a much more interesting question. So uh, Catherine's report came out a bit later. I hasten to say all of this predates Rupert's appointment as Chief People Officer. Um, so, uh, so I thought that was why this was sort of really, really interesting 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 thing so i'm going to go back in time i know that anecdotes are not data but i would just take you through my own personal journey to sound like an x-factor contestant um so if we go back to the summer exactly 20 years ago those of you who are very quick on the ball will know that that is the change of government from a long-standing conservative government to a um, labor government a new enthusiastic bouncy new Labour government with a young-looking Tony Blair and, crucially for me, a young-looking Gordon Brown, surrounded by his acolytes. I was doing a job which I always knew was going to be very, very, very high risk at that changeover. I was press secretary to Ken Clark. Being press secretary to Ken Clark was, I think, the best job or one of the best jobs I've done in the civil service. Being semi-press secretary to Gordon Brown was undoubtedly the worst job I've ever done in the civil service. Um, that summer, I was more miserable than I'd ever been in the civil service. Um, this was all captured on an excellent film, now suppressed, uh, thanks to Gordon Brown's uh, acolytes. Um, but uh, I rapidly concluded that I didn't want to stay as press secretary. Gordon Brown was rapidly concluding the same. Uh, so there's a meeting of minds on that. Uh, I concluded I didn't want to stay in the Treasury, where, where I'd worked for 19 years. Um, uh, various sort of moves were made to find some other nice, quiet, discreet move, but I decided actually this was the time to jump ship. After all, all the rhetoric said that the way of advancing your career was to go outside and get some private sector experience. So I was offered a job at BP, well-known oil multinational, uh, so I left. I resigned uh, and went and worked for six years at BP. It was quite interesting that uh, at various points during that time, various senior people made overtures to me saying, this is all a bit of a mistake, Jill, isn't it? Why don't you come back? Why don't you come back? Actually, after six years, I concluded that really the thing I was better at was being a civil servant and that BP very much regarded a track record as BP as a precondition for advancement. And after all, why wouldn't they? I mean, it's a specialist business or whatever. The idea that you could come in as a sort of generalist and do anything other than government affairs. Government affairs was the one thing I absolutely refused to do. Um, so that was my way to career success in BP, which did government affairs. I said no, I did, but I did do a variety of other things while I was there. So that's my sort of story. So I came back, I applied through an open competition and was recruited to one of these jobs, which, uh, as Catherine has just been saying, civil servants are particularly well fitted for. I came back as Director of Strategy and Sustainable Development at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and I returned in 2004. Uh, so just, just some thoughts. It's quite interesting, because all the rhetoric, all the rhetoric during the 1990s had been, you know, go out, get different experience. But when I came back, I saw the person who'd been Cabinet Secretary when I resigned, who was Sir Robin Butler, now Lord Butler of Brockwell. And it was at a party, and he said to me, how are you finding it, Jill? How it never works, does it? It never works, this going out. <laughs> and actually, I thought that was exactly right, because what was really interesting was from the point of view of my civil service colleagues, my six years in BP, doing jobs working on a big German integration, working uh, as a 
commercial director in the retail business in Madrid and with a team in Lisbon. None of these counted for anything. This was regarded as time wasted. I might as well, frankly, have just gone to a beach and spent six years on a beach for all the sort of thought that this gave me anything that I didn't have before. What I failed to do in that six years was clock up the civil service jobs that would have then prepared me for more advancement. So although I came back at a, uh, a slightly more senior grade, that was all regarded just as time badly spent. Whatever. So that was the first thing. Second thing that really, really worried me about coming back and struck me as really interesting was the absolute lack of curiosity from any of my civil service colleagues about whether I had learnt anything while I was out. After all, I wasn't in the position of Catherine's sort of you know, outsider who's come in and is trying to do their own compare and contrast. I had worked. I was a system insider. In the stats, I count as an outsider recruited in, by the way, so look at those a bit askance. But anyway, um, but despite the fact that most of my career had been in the Treasury, which you don't get much more inside than that, except in number 10, where I'd also been, but nobody was particularly interested in, uh, in whether I had learnt anything, whether I had any interesting reflections about how the civil service did anything and our process and stuff like that based on my time at BP. And you got the sense that when you stuck your thing and say, well, I think the way BP might have approached, you know, it's, oh, God, BP ball, put it back in the box, not very interesting, stuff like that. And that really worried me because actually I thought that meant that nobody was benefiting from that experience I could give. That was all regarded as something that people didn't want to know. Um, there was one exception, a colleague, a former colleague worked for me, who's now a permanent secretary, did actually say, I'd be really quite interested in what you found out while you were there. So I will make one exception, but he really stood out. But that's a shame, because actually I think, and this is going to be my last point, I think actually I did learn a lot, and actually it made me a better civil servant for having been out than somebody who could have done, as for example, the very excellent and now gone completely rogue Lord McPherson did, who basically joined the civil service after two years at the CBI and never left, not just SW1, not just whatever, he never left the Treasury building. I mean, he did move from one side to the other as a result of the Treasury refurbishment. If that hadn't <laughs> happened, Nick probably wouldn't have even moved uh, that much. But I think I learned lots of really valuable things as going out. So let's just have, what did I learn? I took a much more nuanced and sophisticated view in business. A lot of people in the civil service have to deal with business. There's an awful sense, actually, you sort of, you know, that you can't have a dialogue with it. It's about giving business what they want. Uh, there was a very, very interesting moment at BP when the people in the government affairs team decided they weren't be, being taken seriously because they didn't have a bottom line. So they briefly tried to call themselves a business unit called lobbying for profit. And then people said, that doesn't sound very good. You better not call yourselves that. <laughs> but their business unit target was to deliver 25% of the opportunities they identified, not 100%. But a lot of my colleagues in government felt basically people in business really wanted 100%. You had to give them 100%, not that, of course, they were uh, sort of on the same game. I learned that businesses didn't just sort of invest because the return was good. Loads of things in business were actually just not salient enough. That, you know, loads of things to that. So things like energy efficiency. I went to work on sustainable development. BP, until John Brown introduced his own sort of pilot emissions training scheme, didn't pay any... Energy efficiency investments never made the cut in the investment rounds. That all went to the upstream or went there. I thought that was really interesting because I thought business was this sort of super optimizer. That's what my economics degree had told me. But of course it wasn't. It was a satisfier on all these sorts of levels. I had cultural experiences that I would have never have got in the civil service. In the civil service, I would never have had experience of overseeing 
uh, people trying to integrate businesses in Austria, in Poland, in places like that. I would have never had the experience of running a team of Spaniards in Madrid and a team of Portuguese people in Lisbon. Those were incredibly valuable and different experiences that I got by, by going out. And the thing that actually really most interestingly struck me, and it's quite interestingly interesting given how many BP people have now come into government, was actually just how charismatic leaderships of organisations could be. There are one or two of you who I remember from Treasury days who remember that sort of idea of senior Treasury officials giving a town hall was they tried to look relaxed by taking their tie off and putting a jumper on out of their briefcase and then rather nervously sort of make the odd sort of statement trying to communicate to staff. But that was at a time back then when communication skills were not particularly highly valued. But BP expected of its senior leadership some real sort of ability to charismatically uh, motivate the organisation. And the senior people at BP, and I include John Manzoni in this, were incredibly effective communicators compared to the people I'd seen in the civil service. And I thought that was actually a skill that we radically had underdeveloped and undervalued. So I thought I came back with lots. My disappointment was that I felt that trying to contribute that was actually quite unwelcome. Uh, and I, that was from a position of relative strength because I understood the system and things like that. And that's why I thought Catherine's report resonated so much. And why I think it's really important is to, if we're going to have a civil service that is equipped to face all the challenges it now faces, it needs to be able to be a great place to bring people into, but it also needs to be a place that knows how to make them work extraordinarily well in that system. Great. Thanks, Jill. So we've heard a lot, a lot about um, how the system works. I don't think, for some people, that will not be that much of a surprise. There's quite a lot there that I think will resonate. There's also, I, again, that sort of sense of, we have a mission here. You know, and it's not just that Whitehall is different, actually. I think you heard a lot in what Jill said, a lot in what Catherine said about, you know, these are large, complex organisations. They have their own cultures. It takes time to adjust them. Um, Rupert, <laughs> coming on to you. You've come in. Um, you set out the workforce strategy. There's lots of things that I've been observing that are going on differently, lots of focus now on things that really didn't have a focus uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I just wonder, your thoughts, what, how are you addressing, how are we taking these forward, how are we going to know when we're starting to crack the issues that uh, you know, have been around for a very long time, um, and how do we make sure that actually we're going to be able to deliver, you know, ultimately, the really key things that the country needs Whitehall to be able to deliver over the next few years? Thanks, Julian. So uh, the first thing to say is that when you are starting a job like I was in uh, January 2016, as Chief People Officer, um, to have a report like Catherine's as one of the one of the pieces of data that you're absorbing uh, is really fantastic. So actually, one of the first things I did even before I started was work through it and uh, start asking questions during the great luxury I had, which was a sort of a three-month run-in before I actually was trapped by a civil service diary, um, was to, uh, to see whether those reports, whether those actions were, were taking place. So I can, I can reassure Catherine that uh, they are in the process of being, of being actioned. And uh, I'd like to say a bit about that in a, in a moment because it's uh, very, uh, very topical. Uh, I think that the the observation that it's hard to join an organisation, or even probably more accurately, a sector, because the civil service really is 
an organization of organizations. And uh, it, is, uh, it has very many different cultures within it. Um, I think if you take the financial services sector, for example, and compare it to the civil service, financial services organizations are more culturally similar than across all the various departments when you take into account security services, MOD, DWP, etc. And what um, so that that is always that is always that is always hard. Um, what I think has made a real difference is um, a view from the civil service, which is embodied in the workforce plan from civil service leadership, that we need to uh, look at some things collectively, uh, look at our recruitment, look at how we uh, train and induct. Uh, senior leaders into the civil service and also how we address the issue of diversity and inclusion and uh, sort of contemporaneous to Catherine's report we were also doing the bridge report um, or commission bridged the report on the um, on the fast stream and um, you know there are similarities in terms of um, whether people were being a attracted to the civil service um, whether it was taking um, an unreasonable length of time to bring people in, and whether from lower social economic backgrounds, and whether we were uh, really doing all we could to make sure those people were uh, were successful. So rather like Catherine's report and responding to that, we've been responding uh, to the Bridge report, as you may uh, as you may have seen. So bringing it right up to date. So yesterday we had a meeting of. Um, uh, our group of non-executive directors, we have a, a talent action group uh, chaired by Mervyn Walker, uh, who is the lead non-executive director at, the, at HMRC. And uh, this group looks at a whole range of people issues and brings the wisdom of non-executive directors and their experience from outside the civil service to some of our, uh, some of our issues. And that's happening across a range of, uh, of topics. Um, but we are particularly focused, obviously, on what they're doing on the people side. And, uh, they have been doing a piece of work, uh, really building on what Catherine did, to, uh, to look at what are the criteria for success for bringing people in, uh, particularly into senior roles, but I think it applies more broadly, um, and uh, what do we need to do uh, differently. And they've been drawing on the experience both of people who've not had a good experience and also people, and I include myself in this, who have actually been able, have, have felt that it was a positive experience. And there are definitely some uh, important, uh, important characteristics as we break it down. Um, I think one of the first is, uh, as Catherine pointed out, uh, the importance of induction. And I think that's true in every organization. Um, but perhaps it's less obvious in some other places because people tend to move within organizations in the same sector. Moving into the civil service is moving into a different sector. It's moving into... Um, a very different environment in terms of how power is distributed. Um, I made the analogy and observation when I came in that it was much more like being in a partnership than in a traditional corporate environment in the way in which um, authority was distributed. So you need to understand some of those things. It has particular ways of working and particularly one of the great inventions of um, British government which is the private office. And uh, this is something which when, when you come into the civil service is quite new, particularly even, even if you've come in from a large corporate where you think you have the same thing, chiefs of staff, executive assistants, offices, um, and you come in and you say, well, really, do you need this number of, pe do you need this number of people to support the, um, you know, me as a director general or a permanent secretary or, or someone running, an, running a large operation? And what I think is very, is very clear is actually you do. And um, I'm sure some of you will have read this great book, but um, 
R.A.W. Rhodes uh, has written a book called Everyday Life in British Government. It's a fantastic book, which I'd strongly recommend. It has a great chapter on the private offices. Luckily, I had read it before I arrived. And um, you know, that is a very important machine that makes the whole system work. Now, one of my, uh, one of my colleagues, also an ex-BPA, uh, Tony Meggs, um, and we spent a lot of time together, uh, and uh, he makes the observation that um, one of the things that we need to make sure people have when they come into the civil service is an understanding of what he calls Whitehall tradecraft. And what that means is the ability to move around, to, 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 to quote um, someone else, you know, to know where, how to push it where the system moves, uh, where to withdraw, um, and how to make good use of, um, of the resources that, you, that you've got. So induction is, is, is a lot about that. The other is, um, as, as we've done this work, it's been quite interesting that the people who um, seem to have found it easier to come in have had exposure to the civil service before, whether it's through people they know um, or through, um, uh, through working with the civil service, perhaps through their, their, their corporate life. And that's something which actually is quite um, extendable. So in our marketing, are we actually going out and showing people what it's like inside the civil service and, 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 how, we, uh, and how we work? And then um, the other issue is making sure that we've got uh, very good buddying and support uh, so that people can advise people on um, what they, um, how they can navigate around, uh, navigate around the system. Now, those issues actually also exist, as I said, not just in the senior civil service, but people coming in from outside, particularly people who are coming in with specialist, specialist skills from a different sector. Um, and also people moving between layers within the civil service. So we've been giving a lot of attention to, obviously, to permeability into the civil service. There's permeability from um, into the civil service from within, and actually between the layers within the senior civil service, because the nature of the jobs change quite dramatically between the deputy director level, the director level, the DG level, and making sure that we actually recognise that. So one of the things which we've got in our Leadership Academy is um, a much greater focus on the base camps, the induction that will let people move um, uh, bet between, uh, between those types of roles um, more, uh, more easily. Um, and then uh, the other thing which uh, we hear a lot about, particularly outside the senior civil service, but I think it's true in the senior civil service, is um, making it easier for people to move between departments. And uh, that's not just in terms of the cultural differences between departments, because they, they, they exist, um, but uh, just the very the, the, the process of coming in and moving uh, into a new role and being effective as soon as possible. Um, the, so so a, range, a range of issues around that theme of permeability really, really in all directions which we're trying to address and which I think um, deal with the very real issues that both Catherine and, um, and Jill have, have referenced. The, the creation of the professions is a hugely important part of, of, the, uh, of the new environment that we've got. And this is, this is really interesting because I think for the first time, uh, the civil service has got, if you're a, a civil servant at any level, um, you're really going to have three identities. And uh, one is you're a civil servant, that's a very important identity. Um, one of our great cultural strengths, the purpose, the values, uh, what that means. Um, the second is your departmental identity, which is, um, is also very important. And uh, it would be very naive to think that in our distributed system there was any way in which you could really um, would, would want to um, diminish that uh, departmental identity. But then there's also the professional identity. 
And that, in a sense, has been, I think, a bit of the missing leg of the three-legged stool. Um, and what we're now seeing is, um, in terms of, for example, this question of how do you induct people effectively, that's something which I, for example, as head of the HR profession, um, uh, or my colleague, uh, you know, Mike, Mike Driver, as head of the finance profession, will really be responsible for. Are we making sure that the experience of joining as an HR person or a finance person in DEFRA um, is as good as joining the Cabinet Office or DWP? And uh, how, do we, uh, how do we help people by drawing on the professional network, which is another really important source of support in, in, in Whitehall? Now, that has actually, that's something which has changed uh, really very rapidly, I think, in the past uh, two, uh, two years. Uh, and it's something which, through the whole process of um, preparing for leaving the EU, um, we're actually giving that uh, an even further boost. So for the first time, for example, uh, we are looking at the, uh, the policy profession um, as, uh, as something which we can look at as a collective resource across government and uh, create pools and reserves of people that we can draw on when we have particular policy needs, whether that's supporting particular parts of the um, leaving the EU process um, or when there are national issues as we've had in recent weeks that have to be dealt with. Um, and what's been really interesting to me watching that and comparing it to large corporate environments in which I've been in is actually the very high level of collaboration and the willingness for people to help when you approach them through the policy axis and where there is a clear need to move people uh, around. And I would say I would perhaps expecting more resistance. Um, you know, I'm doing this important thing, why would I contribute these people to support the, uh, the collective effort? But um, it's been really pleasing to see in a very short uh, amount of time um, how people have been, uh, been mobilised uh, mobilized to do that. Um, well, one of the characteristics um, as well of, um, of civil servants, I think, is there, um, there's a huge amount of resilience um, and there is a uh, huge uh, resilience just in, 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 in environments of massive change where actually compared to the private sector you have many more constraints, whether it's political constraints or financial constraints or a constraint, frankly, of uh, transparency. I think that's a good thing, um, but uh, you have to be very ingenious and very adept to delivering government. More so, I suspect that in some in some corporate context, so that's a very uh, that's a very important thing. Um, and I think that we talk about permeability as people coming into government. I think um, actually business uh, and uh, and other sectors are and will be richer by having the opportunity to. Um, take, as Jill experienced, take people out of government and see the huge skills and capability that they've, uh, that they've got. The final thing I want to say on it is um, I think there is a, um, an interesting question about uh, cultural fit. And I put this out as a, as a bit of a provocation. Um, and it's interesting because we're looking now at selection criteria. We've done a lot to sort of look at making sure things like the civil service competency framework are in the right place, making sure that we recognize experience, and looking at you know, what is the success profile for someone in a job. That's sort of the working term we're using for this. And a component of that is fit. And uh, fit exists within the civil service because I can see that you know, perhaps if you're working in DFID, you might not want to work in cabinet office or whatever. You know, you've got different, uh, different um, appetites for working in different, uh, different environments. Um, but it is a two-way street. So 
when you uh, when you join government, just as when you join any other sector, organisational context, you need to accept um, some of those cultural norms that you're going to experience. So things, so people that I would observe are probably going to be less successful coming into government are those who've had very high levels of autonomy um, in their previous roles because that's just not what you have in any big system, whether it's a public sector system or a private sector system. Um, people who have been brought in to be disruptors, by the way, I don't think in any sector that really works unless you want to destroy as well as disrupt. I think people have got to have some respect for the environment in which they're coming. And so if I sort of go back to a piece of advice I gave to someone that uh, uh, was joining me and I knew his character and it tended to be um, more of the bull in the china shop variety which is what I wanted for that job um, this was not in the civil service um, it, it was, uh, I said look when you're coming into this uh, environment um, you've got to uh, it's not like you're going to sit in the bath and turn the taps on and fill it up you need to lower yourself into a full bath and uh, that I think is uh, an important thing and we need to make sure we've got people who are willing to do that when they join uh, when they join the, uh, the, the civil service. You've got to accept that there are some cultural things which you need to um, accept, as another metaphor is sinking in. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Thank you, Rupert. Excellent. Um, just before I throw it open to questions from the floor, there's, there's a lot there in what you were, you were sort of talking about. Uh, a lot of stuff that I'd really recognise from things that are going on around induction, the fast stream and things like that. I mean, one, I mean, professions is something that is, I think, quite a new thing in the civil service. And Francis Ward was starting yeah, to drive yeah. some of that uh, with Catherine's report. I just wonder, Catherine, if you were listening to that, are those sort of things, you know, like the drawing on the professional characteristics and some of those networks, do they, do they sound like the types of things that you'd be saying, look, okay, I can see how that works, is comparable to what we do in the private sector, meet some of the things you were finding in your report? Or are there other things you think, okay, well, actually, maybe we should be poking at this as well as the, as the things we were talking about? Thank you. Um, I'm conscious you've probably heard quite a lot, and there's a lot of information, and there's a huge, broad spectrum. So to simplify my world, I was looking at people who had either done well when they come in the civil service or were done badly. So it was very much therefore focused very much at the front end rather than the back end because if they were done well and then what was their future, that was less in the spotlight. So therefore my, my priority is absolutely about the selection, the process, and I don't think it's really come out so far, the candidate care. Um, of how there isn't one person who looks after, and this can be a very senior person. And again, like everything in the civil service, it's uh, so many different cultures, so many different ways of doing it, so many differences between departments, and so many doing uh, by level. But a broad brush that it felt like the DG and perm set kind of got the gold-plated version. And somehow, even though they were sort of just a nudge, nudge below and they could be the DG and perm set for the future, it was the directors and the deputy directors that were my key focus. And I put that in the context of, I was not asked to look at the fast stream work, but obviously my role as a recruiter and graduate recruiter, etc. I knew how brilliant that civil service fast track was but I couldn't work out in my own mind why you'd put all this fantastic effort and quality um, into fast stream your grads and then people who were a lot more senior didn't necessarily get this they just felt like there was a slightly missing now again very careful some areas uh, some occasions that wouldn't be the, the case so basically my issues my priorities would be about the directors and deputy directors coming in and it was about selection candidate care how they landed, who looked after them, who felt responsible for them, did they have an induction, did they know what to do. So that was quite a lot, 
but come to your point directly, it, I then met a number of people who had kind of survived that and genuinely they, used, they turned around to me and I felt that they hadn't had any career discussion and they said, beyond the job there's a void. And I was, I was sort of, sometimes your ears and your brain are going, did I hear that? Like you're, he was, uh, I remember this particular person, clearly high caliber, fast track, super duper person who would be at the, 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 the top and he was saying what was a career path. Now I'm sure that might have changed. But the, what I sensed is it's very much, um, again, not a generalization, there were pockets where there wasn't a career path. So I'd also make the final point is it's also about career paths, about whether these people have been brought in for a specific role, and then you could kind of get the idea they're coming in, making this change, going back to industry, maybe doing a bit disrupting on the way, yeah, that makes sense. But there were other people who were coming in this person, uh, particularly in my mind, who had a particular set of skills that were very valuable and he didn't see where his career was going. And I'm not sure if that, dif I didn't get a sense of that being differentiated in terms of how people were uh, managed and where they were going. Okay. Rupert, did you want to come Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that, I mean, what Catherine's identified there, and I think mm -hmm. that is a, a change that's happened in the past two, four months particularly, is the role of the professions. Because the, the career pathways which we're putting in place now, um, the, the fact that we are now looking at talent, uh, having talent discussions not just through a departmental lens but through a functional lens um, and through a professional lens is really, uh, is really important and I think it's a, it's a huge waste if we're not doing that. And I do want to emphasise that you know, the, the, the importance of the bringing people in successfully at deputy director level and director and making sure they are properly inducted, again with the right professional support and departmental support is key both actually for people coming in from other departments and being promoted as well as for people coming in from uh, coming in from outside. So no, I think it's a very uh, very well made point. Jill, do you I was just going to say, um, discover things. I think one of the things that struck us when I referred to our Australian conversation, they said that actually they didn't recruit people in at the sort of level they really wanted them to be at. They brought them in a level below, so they made one jump across yeah. and then you know, got them used to the system and to be effective. I mean, the sort of Tony makes tradecraft learning, got them sort of so they could function, apply, and then they put them into the sort of exposed role where they were supposed to be performing. And I thought that sounded like the sort of right, because I think trying to make too many leaps at once is just too much. Uh, there's a really interesting example I was going to give, because I think one of the problems of insiders, and people who are inveterate insiders, is we just don't really understand what we just know and assume everybody else knows. We had a brilliant example in a case study we did of Sure Start. Sure Start was a program that the Labour government did starting in 1998. And they brought in someone who'd run a charity to run the Sure Start union. She's given a budget, two billion, quite a big budget. She gets a letter from the Permanent Secretary of Treasury telling her she's the accounting officer. She doesn't know what that is. And she doesn't spend the money in year because there's nothing to spend it on. And then someone tells her that in late March that she should have spent all that money because it then goes away because she's not heard of things like you know annual budgeting end year flexibility because in a charity if you don't have to spend the money it's a great thing not to spend the money and yet she's sort of oh my god saying what you didn't spend the budget no no and I think it's the thing which yeah those of us have grown up knowing how the public spending you know and things like that all know you know March you're looking around for the things you're going to spend your money on stuff like that it's all changed now I know Simon but anyway but I think it's just really interesting that to everybody inside, that's not even worth mentioning to somebody, but to somebody coming in from outside, it's the absolute reverse of everything they've experienced. I think it's those sorts of things where actually people coming in from outside need to be sharing what surprised them and what therefore needs to go into that sort of induction.
Yeah. Excellent. I have a couple more questions for Rupert, but I'll feed them in, and if people here beat me to them, that oh. would be uh, great. So, uh, questions coming from uh, people. Um, Sam, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, um, Simon Judge, Director for People and Capability in the Government Finance Function. I just thought it would be helpful just to share a bit of experience of, of what we've been doing, just picking up what, what Rupert was saying. We've now done our second round of recruitment at Deputy Director level, uh, 13 people. Uh, we have our induction day on Tuesday, so this uh, session is very timely to make sure we're covering all the things that we should be. Uh, one of them actually is giving people a really practical checklist of things to go back to their departments and ask awkward questions about, like, you know, how do I get paid, how do I work out my annual leave, which uh, uh, still many organisations are, are, are pretty bad at. Uh, managing that sort of recruitment would have been inconceivable three or four years ago. Uh, you know, we've made a lot of progress. I think the process of then matching individuals to jobs uh, is still taking... You know, it's still taking a bit longer uh, than we would like. It, it has forced us to think quite hard about what the offer is, so I think going back to some of Jill's points around the things you assume around you know, the range of jobs that people do, the nature of the work, uh, the nature of the career path. Uh, if you ask, you know, what's my career path as a deputy director in finance in DCLG, uh, the answer is you haven't got one, um, but, the answer, but there is one across the function and we will help you navigate, you know, navigate your, way your way through that. So I, th I think there are you know, a lot of practical examples now about how we get this w to work, and it's not just uh, make an obvious point, you know, this is not just a benefit to bringing people in from outside, it's actually dealing with a whole lot of issues uh, within the career civil service uh, where people are still far too attracted to their own departments uh, and don't move around enough. Uh, my question is for Rupert, uh, do you wish you'd come in and done a more junior role within the civil service? <laughs> right, hold, hold that thought for a minute, I'll take a few more. Uh, the lady just behind uh, there. I'll just stand up because I know you can't see me from there. Um, I, my name's Emma. I work for Defence Equipment and Support, which is an arm-length entity of the MOD. We're at the tail end of our transformation, which, as part of that, we're trying to create a better package for external candidates that's more appealing um, for them to come into the business. Um, one of the things they've done in that is they've allowed for negotiated pay. But what that's meant for us is if an external candidate applies for a job and uh, an internal candidate applies externally for the same job, the external candidate can negotiate their pay, whereas the internal candidate is not allowed to negotiate their pay because they're already an existing civil servant. So my question would be, um, how do you create an appealing package for external candidates while at the same time not alienating the staff you already have that might have 35 years worth of tacit knowledge. Excellent, thank you. I'll just take a question just in front. I'm conscious there's some over this side, but just uh, Martin. Um, Martin Wheatley. Um, like Jill, I left the civil service to local government, came back, left again, um, not having been offered any opportunity to do anything on my return to the civil service that would have anything remotely to do with local government. My uh, three very interesting contributions, but I was left wondering whether this is an issue that can be tackled in isolation uh, or it has to be tackled as part of much more fundamental challenge to things that are wrong with the way the civil service works in terms of uh, the priority and attention given to leadership, leadership skills, um, diversity and difference and the way that diversity and difference are encouraged and enabled rather than stifled. 
um, and uh, and induction as well, because as a uh, someone who, who had a, a, a career in the civil service before le leaving it. It's not just I didn't get any induction when I happened to come back in from outside. I never had any induction that meant anything in any role that I ever moved into and through the civil service. So is this something that can be solved in isolation or do we need to look at some rather more fundamental issues about the way the system works? Great. We'll come back on those. Um, Rupert, there's at least one very specific question for you. Uh, did you come in at too senior a level? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but do you want to pick up some of yeah, those? Yeah, well, let, let me just do, do those, those th three, and perhaps um, if I could do them in re reverse order. So, um, to answer the question, I mean, I think the, you're absolutely right, that, and that really is the essence of the workforce plan, which is there are, it is a complex system, and you need to address, you, you, know, you can't divert, you, you can't separate building leadership capability from diversity and inclusion, from career pathways, and they're all very interdependent. So, I think that one of the things that happened with the, the leadership of the civil service, the permanent secretary is saying, look, collectively, this is what we need to be doing, uh, and the force they've put behind that, um, that, that, that challenge is recognised. You can't deal with these things piecemeal, it's a complicated uh, system. I hope we're dealing with each of those bits that you've recognised, drawing on the lessons that um, people like you and others have, have experienced. Again, I'm happy to talk uh, more, more about that. Um, I mean, Emma's point is very, uh, is very topical because uh, this is something that we're talking about um, at the moment, um, partly because of uh, what professions allow us, allow us to do. So um, the discussion actually that we had a, a meeting of our people board yesterday where we discussed uh, some of this, these issues, and uh, it's, the, it's the dilemma that every organisation has in this area, which is um, balancing internal equity with the ability to attract the right people in the marketplace. And uh, it's a universal rule uh, that if you don't keep those two things in balance, then you're gonna have a big problem. And you know, it is completely inconceivable that the civil service will be, a, should be a dual track thing where there is some kind of, um, you know, for want of a better word, discrimination between people who've come up through the ranks uh, and people who come in from uh, from outside, it's very unhealthy, uh, a very unhealthy thing. So now, pr professions, and I think this is, I think this will be the way in which we have to approach this, just in terms of the mechanics of it. Um, so people like Simon who are s setting up professions like the finance function will be able to look and manage, first of all, making sure that there is not interdepartmental arbitrage which happens. We've seen that particularly in uh, technology you know, as an issue that we need to address. And also making sure that people are coming in and um, people being promoted to roles are being treated in the right, uh, in the right way. Now, the, the, the complexity, and I know the work that's happening in DNS, which is really great, um, you need to look at the whole package. And you know, it is definitely the case that the civil service pension remains you know, uh, one, of the, um, you know, one of the premier benefits, but it's not the benefit that it once was, um, but you still need to take that into account. So, look at, so, so looking, looking at the package carefully, and, it may, and one of the things we also need to look at is, is giving flexibility around, for example, what happens if you come in and you haven't had the benefit of many, career, many years in um, the Civil Service Pension Scheme, and you come in from what's primarily a defined contribution uh, reward history, how do, how do you deal with that? But 
I think that so the, the, the area where we ba we do this balance is at the is at the professional level and uh, and quite and quite carefully. So it's a very well made point. Um, I, you know, I, the thing about Simon on, the, on that question, as I go around the uh, country looking at different civil service jobs, I come away from each one thinking that's the job I wish I'd actually done when I left <laughs> university. So um, at, at the moment, I'm thinking I wish I'd joined the prison service. Um, but, I, but, but then I was sitting in a Coast Guard helicopter about a month ago and I thought that would have been a good job too. So um, I, I, yeah, any job, really. I mean, you know, that's what I thought when I applied for the first year and didn't get in. So. <laughs> Kasim, do you have any thoughts on that? On no, the, set of, the set of issues that were raised. Um, I think the only thing I was going to pick up was the fact that, um, as Jill said, about coming in a level below and moving in. That's very much standard practice. I did have that in my report. Um, I mean, McKinsey is always held up as the big private sector kind of hero, and they have a very clear view that if they don't, if people don't come in at their usual grad entry, they come in at more senior, that they're actually part of a team, and actually they have to. Um, kind of go almost two levels below what they might be um, in order to really learn the craft. And I, I was quite confused when I, when I read about this, thinking how, and spoken to people, but the point was, in an organisation like that where it's all about the people, it's also all about the networks. And if you come too high, you just don't get that camaraderie. You know, you've got to basically kind of be the in their world, Junior Joe, doing the research, doing the anal uh, analysis, rushing around with lots of people to kind of get your stripes, but also build a network in order to then be very senior. So I just throw that in as a, a very good private sector example of why it is near on impossible to get parachuted in near enough at the top and then somehow work your way around an organisation where you haven't had that capital and expertise built up over a number of years. Great, thank you. Take some more questions, comments. Um, so Bill. I'm Bill Wells. I was responsible for the cross-cutting review on the public sector labour market for the 2002 um, um, spending review. Um, and I, I just have one comment, which was when we did that, uh, we, we had to consider what the strategy was before we suggested what the strategy should be. Um, and I think in current terms, sorry about the terrible sporting analogy, the strategy was sort of Paris Saint-Germain um, or hopefully Real Madrid, which is you concentrate too much on the talent um, and um, just wait and try to get everybody together. Um, and the conclusion of our report was it should be more like the workforce development for a 24 hours Tesco's, which is to get the right people into the right job at the right time. Um, and so the focus was on who can do the job that's there. And and the sort of talent-based one, A, is dependent on the talent, and B, doesn't evolve, essentially. Um, and we made some moves towards the model that I, I was suggesting, um, but I think 
we've gone backwards and maybe have gone backwards even further. For example, in all of this discussion so far, I've not heard the customer mentioned once. Um, you know, there has not been the service that we give to ministers, nor indeed the service that we give to the public, i.e. why are we doing this talent stuff? So I, I just think that we ought to be more like Tesco's than Paris Saint-Germain. Okay, a, a retail meets sporting metaphor there, and it kind of really stretches my mind. Um, gentlemen here, come back and questions there. Hi, I'm Bill Brock from the Civil Service Commission. Um, all this stuff about bringing in people at a, a, a level below and growing them is all very, very sensible, but how does it sit with the presumption of open competition, which is what the civil service is committed to, that by 2020 every job will be open to the outside? And I suppose I'd particularly like to ask Catherine whether you think that is a strategy that any other large organisation would adopt, to open every single one of its jobs to the outside market. Okay, thank you. And then I think there was a gentleman right at the back. Um, hi. Um, I, I'm Phil Graham from the National Infrastructure Commission. Um, I, I, I recognise a, a lot of the challenges and I, I, in terms of bringing people in at the senior civil service level. Um, and I suspect I'm part of the problem. I suspect I'm as inculcated in civil service culture as anyone, as anyone else and, and part of that. The thing that I think, we're, we're, we're not a typical civil service organisation, there's only 40 of us, but the thing that we have done successfully in our short life is try and build teams that bring in people from the private sector at grade 7 and grade 6 level. Because that's when, and sometimes they are people who are effectively dropping down a bit, but that's when they're operating as part of a team, exactly as Catherine says, and they're doing, doing the work and operating alongside and with the civil servants, and there is that kind of exchange of skills and knowledge just because it's necessary as part of the day-to-day -day job. What has been difficult in doing that is a lot of the flexibilities that have been brought in in terms of remuneration and so on and so forth for people at the senior civil service level where you can go to the minister and ask to recruit at a higher salary and so on and so forth quite often don't exist below the senior civil service and you're, you're working with much more inflexible pay grades and we've had to find some quite creative ways pardon me of, uh, of finding a way of finding a way around that so i wonder whether the discussion is a little bit still too much at that higher level whereas actually bringing people in who, who, and these are not people who've only been working in the private sector for two years. These are people with 10, 12 years experience in some case, but that's the point at which the, the cultural sharing, I think, possibly operates more effectively, and then some of them will carry on into the senior levels on the back of that. Excellent, thank you. Um, so come back um, for responses to those uh, sort of points. Rupert, do you want to kick us off again? So, so just, just, just quickly, again, taking notes in turn. I, first of all, I just want to be, for, for absolutely for the record, you know, it is a... The civil service is there to serve ministers in serving the citizen, and uh, and everything is uh, is obviously predicated on that. And I have um, a lot of there's a lot of resonance in your analogy that, in fact, you need a you need a mix of both of those approaches: your Real Madrid versus your Tesco's. But in a world where increasingly you have specialisms and you need to deploy specialist expertise. Um, things might tend to be a bit more Tesco-like. So I think I, I completely agree with that. And that's why workforce planning, which we're really trying to raise our game on, is so 
uh, is so important, how you structure, uh, how you structure jobs. Um, I think on, uh, on Bill's point, I think it's very, uh, very interesting. I actually think the issue about people coming in is encouraging people that that would be a good thing for them to do and the jobs that they should apply for. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't think in any way, you know, one, of the, one of the great strengths of the civil service system is fair and open competition and very, uh, very, actually very rigorous selection that's got, I think, a lot, continues to get a lot better. I, in, interestingly, one of the things which we now do as absolute standard, uh, as you know, Bill, for, for, well, for almost every role now that I'm seeing at senior level is there's a, a, a multitude of things. There's a traditional panel-based interview uh, in the SCS. Um, there's also psychometric tests and all those things. But one of the most interesting things, which I've never had never seen done before in the private sector, but if I'd known about it, I would have done it, is the staff panel. And that's a very interesting thing because what I find from people who've done the staff panel is, first of all, um, it's actually quite a good way for them to get induction into the civil service and its culture. You know, they're being asked by people who may not be of the same grade that they're coming in at, but who are, in a sense, people they'll be working closely with and, and, and colleagues. Um, and the feedback that we get from those on candidates that they get fed into the interview process is really very, um, very informative. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't see that, uh, I don't see that uh, conflict. So I think the, um, uh, would, would we bring people in, uh, so sh should we bring people in at that, at that level? Uh, I, I think it's building what Jill said, as we looked at what Catherine had, uh, had found and sort of explored what had been, where people had been successful, and actually this was true in the finance function, um, the uh, bringing people in at that DD level, for example, was particularly, particularly good. And the final point, um, this grade six, grade seven role, so the middle, you know, the senior middle management of the civil service is absolutely critical. It's the level at which fast streamers roll off into permanent positions. Um, it's where a lot of the professional um, expertise is. Um, actually, also at our discussion yesterday, uh, we were talking about that grade, and I, I, I do hear what you say about the about the the need for flexibility. Again, I think the answer lies in. Um, allowing professionals to say how they need those packages to be structured in the professions. Excellent, thank you. I just pick up, I think, uh, Phil's point's really interesting, so actually I think one of the interesting ways for people to come into the civil service is to come in through arm's length bodies. And I think there's a really interesting permeability issue between the civil service arm's length bodies, often nearer to delivery, but also it can be a sort of route in for people who are subject specialists, because you'll find more technical experts, after all, one of the three criteria for remaining an arm's length body was that you were technically expert. So I think it's a really interesting sort of thing, and I think you do see with those that they tend to have uh, you know, half and half sort of private sector. I think we did an analysis of where did they recruit their chief executives from. That was quite an interesting route for people mm. from other sectors to run an organisation and maybe come in to the civil service. I think it's really interesting. Just one thing I want to say on, on salary flexibility, which is, I think, really interesting, which is sort of trying to think what you're achieving. I had a friend who had worked for a long time um, opening up stores for major retailers in China. She applied for a job at UKTI before the Department of International Trade was thing. And she was you know, prepared to go to China again. She didn't really want to do that. She prepared to do it. But the thing that they failed on was that she was single. And she wanted a package that allowed her to have some friends come visit. But the package on offer was for married people. 
and they had no flexibility. She said, it's the equivalent amount of money. Can you not do me a deal? And she said, any private sector firm she'd organised for would have done her a deal that would have said, well, this is what you want. We can organise a package that works for you, that costs the public no more than the package we would have had as a standard offer. But the thing failed on the grounds they just couldn't do that deal. And so that talent is lost. She's now looking after foster dogs in uh, West Sussex. Anyway, so and I, th I think it's really interesting about you know, how difficult do we make things. I mean, it's obviously a huge issue for the Foreign Office, you know, trying to do things in the 21st century, diplomatic thing to accommodate different lifestyles. But I think it's really interesting, do we actually make things too difficult for ourselves? But I would say, you know, Robin Butler was undoubtedly right that you know, it doesn't count for anything going away for six years. In terms of salary, I made out like a bandit by going away and reapplying from outside. I mean, I came in at so much higher salary than if I'd worked my way up through six years, she said. But anyway, and then afterwards, they told me about the pensions benefits as well, which I couldn't believe, and I couldn't believe they told me in the hadn't told me in the salary negotiation. But anyway, but talk that offline. Excellent. Um, Catherine, um, any sorts of reflections, and particularly on would any other set of organisations automatically do a process that says all jobs are going to be op open to external competition while still running the some of the inflexibilities around pay and negotiation that we've been talking about. I hear you. So on the open and fair competition, clearly very important, I get the point about um, uh, opening it up outside. I kind of think that's where companies might end up going anyway because of the nature of websites, infrastructure, digital age. It's, it's kind of like that's where everything's kind of open. Um, I, I couldn't speak on behalf of any particular organisation right now, but I think that whole idea of that jobs should be transparent and uh, people should be able to apply from all sorts of backgrounds, I think is probably the way work is going. So I don't see that as a, a big question. A couple of things I just quickly pick up on. First of all, Jill, talking about your the Chinese package uh, lady, um, just to say that I had a couple of people who answered my questionnaire who felt that they were kind of in sort of strange outposts of the kind of empire that we'd forgotten about, but actually turned out to be people who were actually quite close, but in other countries who were working as senior civil servants, who basically felt very disconnected to the mothership. So the fact that I was even sending them a questionnaire felt like they were some, some kind of reach out program. So I do, I do urge you to look at those people that appear on a structure chart in terms of strange outposts around the around the organisation because it felt like they had not really been spoken to. In fact, I felt so sorry. I thought I would just get on a plane and go and see some of these people. But anyway, that's a little aside. Um, fair and open, we've talked about because I do think that's the way life is going. Uh, I love the ideas about bringing the teams in at a ju more junior level, uh, grade six and seven for everything that uh, we've talked about here. Um, so I just absolutely support everything you, you said there. Um, and then the last point about serving ministers. I, I just want to make sure that this message was really clear from my report, that I just got a huge sense of purpose and mission and pride from people working in the civil service. I got a sense of professionalism and integrity. I didn't get any sense of any negatives. I didn't even say the negatives, you know. I got a sense of, because they felt they were serving the government of the day, that in turn were serve citizens. So if I didn't make that clearly enough in my, in my opening remarks, then I apologise, but just to make that very clear. And that's why I felt so passionate, because there were great people trying to do a great job for many people in this country who absolutely need their expertise. And there were just some sort of almost silly stuff, hygiene factors, just things that got overlooked. 
that needed to be changed and quite rapidly. So I would urge, it's great to hear some of the changes that um, Rupert's outlined, but I would say, you know, do another research program. Go and, you know, find someone to go and talk to these people and really hear that those changes have been made because that's what people are looking for. Excellent. Well, that, that actually brings me up. I'm just going to close with a couple of quick questions to Rupert. So the first is just picking directly up on that. Have we planned to do some more rerun the research uh, just to see what's going on? And slightly more broadly, um, you know, when I talk to people, I think there's a real cultural change out there going on at the moment. A real focus around these issues are recognised. Um, the solution slowly being sort of inculcated into the system and the thinking. Um, but what should we be looking for? Because I also meet people who say, this is all just a little bit of a fad. You know, another go round a civil service workforce plan. It will be here today, it'll be another one along tomorrow. What should we be looking for? What are you looking at on the things that, the key indicators that say, actually we're starting to really make progress on this, this yeah. is starting to move. and it's delivering for the things Bill was talking about, actually we're going to be better able to deliver for the public uh, yeah. because of the things we've done. Well, I mean, I, mean, I think the whole, first of all, take, take the first thing, I think the, the idea of bringing in deeply experienced independent people um, like Catherine or as we did with the, um, uh, with the Bridge Group to review parts of our system is uh, ex extremely important and that's obviously uh, where IFG are a huge help to us as well. So I think that's becoming you know, one of the great strengths of civil service, it's evidence-based, it's evidence -based. Um, that's becoming even, even stronger uh, and uh, so the answer is yes of course we'll, we, we will look at that and we need to, you know, when we publish our workforce plan uh, progress reports. We'll put we'll, we'll put that uh, put that in there, and you'll see some data coming out. Actually, we've got a diversity and inclusion strategy, which you expect to see before the end of the year. That will also have some very important uh, uh, data and uh, and challenges in it uh, in it as well. Um, so uh, I, I think you know what what would you be able to what should you be looking for? I would encourage people to look at several things. First of all, the um, the actual progress which we make over. Uh, multiple years on diversity and inclusion. I think that's a hugely important indicator of the health of our people processes, uh, particularly representation of the senior levels in the uh, in the civil service, um, and particularly those you know those areas which we know are underrepresented, um, BAME and, and disability. So look at that. That's a very tangible thing. Um, but also look at what people like Simon are doing in the professions. That is where. Uh, you know, really exciting things are, are happening. Um, I mean, taking an example, actually, linking those two points, when you look at what um, the government digital service, sort of on behalf of the DDAT profession, the digital data and technology profession, is doing on um, ethnically diverse panels, uh, taking a lesson from DWP, which it worked, where it worked very effectively, effectively there and deploying that across, and, um, and look at things like what Simon is doing on the finance side and the way people are moving, uh, are moving around the, uh, the organisation. And the, you know, the quintessential civil service profession of policy, mm -hmm. um, which again doesn't really get um, perhaps as much profile actually as it deserves for the amazing work it's done on defining standards and policy, incorporating um, all the work on evidence-based um, uh, policy making. And, uh, and similarly on operational delivery. So look, so focus on the focus on the professions, and I think that's a, a really uh, a really important part of it.
Look, thank you for that. Um, and just to say, of course, uh, you touched on the Institute as your, your, your friendly uh, commentator from across the park. Uh, just to say, on diversity, we'll, we'll, Whitehall Monitor will be coming out. Excellent. I think that's coming Excellent. up, which we'll be looking at that. Uh, we have a paper in uh, September, I hope, uh, which is uh, part of the work we're doing with Oracle, which will be looking at the maturity assessment across the professions and the functions to see how they're doing and the lessons that different ones can learn from each other. Uh, and policy, uh, uh, an old friend, I want to ask Jill to talk about this because we could be here for quite a long longer but we're hoping to organize an event series coming up of just breaking down what do we mean by policy if we start to think of it as a specialism what are the component parts of it rather than a set of generalisms um, so big 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 topics which I hope we can uh, contribute on but look thank you all to the panel very much for coming in I think that was a really really interesting discussion picking on some things that we've known have been about for a long while but taking it into what are the plans and how these work to actually sort this out taking it back to you know the service of the country which is fundamentally what the civil service is about so look thank you all very much and I hope you can join me in thanking our panel. Thank